Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for Samson, for a man of great physical strength, matched with surprising spiritual weakness. And Lord, I thank you for that, because that Father might be exactly who we are. Strength in worldly terms, but weakness inside, Father, and that may be, um, that may be something that we need to wrestle with, just as we see Samson dealing with it in his life. And so, Father, I thank you that your word is not just filled with heroes. It's also filled, Father, with um, men and women who reflect the reality of what it looks like to live in a sinful world. And yet, Father, in your word, it's so evident as we study this man's life that you did not walk away from him. Your faithfulness was never in doubt. And though he was at times, Father, uh, walking against your purposes, you found ways, Father, to use him nonetheless. And so we take that encouragement as well, that while we want to study this man's life, learning what we can about how to live better from his mistakes, we also want to remember, Father, that you take those you have and you use them and you bring good things out of our lives, Father, so that we cannot be discouraged merely because we cannot be perfect. Let us see both sides of that coin this morning, Father, as we study in his in his story, in his life, and uh, learn according to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a couple weeks, so let me remind you that in our previous study of Samson, we were at the moment where he had been betrayed, at the end of 15, chapter 15, he was betrayed by his Jewish brothers, and he had been turned over to Israel's enemies, the Philistines. And the reason was that the Jews were upset at Samson, Because their oppressors, the Philistines, were upset at them. And the Philistines were upset at them because Samson had killed many Philistines in retaliation for what the Philistines had done in murdering his wife. I mean, the chain just kept going, right? So there's this cycle of revenge and violence and revenge and violence. And it almost culminated in all-out war between the Philistines and the Jews. But friends, remember, that's what the Lord wanted. Ironically, he wanted this warfare, if you will, because he had raised Samson up in the first place, so that he would fight the Philistines and free Israel from their oppressor. The problem had been, as we've studied, that Samson wasn't very focused on this mission. That's the real problem. He got caught up in things like marrying Philistines instead of opposing Philistines. And through a series of circumstances, the Lord has now brought him full circle back to the point where he was supposed to have been in the very start. Since Samson wouldn't go to the fight, the Lord brought the fight to Samson. That's basically what we've watched. And then you have Samson himself appointed by the Spirit, possessing this superhuman strength. He can defeat entire armies by his own hand. Last time we read at the end of chapter 15 that Samson used his strength to thwart the Jews in their plans to hand him over to the Philistines. He had his hands bound, if you remember. And then he just single-handedly breaks the bonds, grabs a donkey jawbone, and uses it to defeat an entire army. And this is clearly supernatural. So now we find ourselves at the end of chapter 15, Samson's defeated that army, not just once, but twice now in the story of his life. This stopping point at the end of 15, this tells us an awful lot about the deterioration of the Jewish culture in the time of Judges. We haven't hit this theme in a little while, and I want to remind you of it as we go forward now in the story. In fact, think back for a moment to the prior Judges we've studied, just in general, if you can. You know, at first, you remember the Judges were men, and in one case a woman, who led armies into defeat of God's enemies. There would be the opportunity to free Israel from an oppressor and then the people would rally and they'd fight and it would be done and then there would be that period of peace that followed after each of those cycles. You remember that? And as time's gone by in the story of Judges, have you noticed 
it's becoming increasingly more difficult for each judge to find the will among the people of Israel to enter into battle. Deborah had to convince a soldier to do it, and he said, well, I'm only going to go if you go with me. Right? And then you had Gideon, who himself wasn't even convinced. God had to persuade him twice that, yes, go. And then Jephthah, Jephthah had to recruit. He had to do that little circuit through the Jordan River Valley to find anyone who wanted to go to battle with him. It's like now he's having to pull them into battle. And now you find at this point a judge who has to do it entirely by himself. Every battle that we've seen so far has been him and him only defeating armies of of Philistines. It would seem as though the Lord knew that by the time we got to this point in the history of Israel, in this time of Judges, that Samson would have to have supernatural strength because it's going to be only him in the battle. The need for this man to be strong is itself an indication of the weakness of the culture around him. But now, Samson is finally into the battle now, right? God has dragged him there, but okay, he's there. Now the Philistines and the Jews are going to have the battle that God intended and it's going to result in God freeing the Jewish people, right? Samson's on the right path now. He's going to move ahead in obedience, bringing the rest of Israel with him. No. No, that's not what's going to happen. That's the point again of Judges. There's a one-way direction in the story and it doesn't ever turn and go back up. It's going down for a reason. Let's return to the scene at the end of chapter 15. Let me show you how this moves forward in that downward direction. And as the battle finishes, there's a very interesting moment in verse 18. Let's start there. Then he, of course referring to Samson, Then he became very thirsty and he called to the Lord and said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? But God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, so that water came out of it. When he drank, his strength returned, and he revived. Therefore, he named it en Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day. So he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. So following the battle, what happens is very understandable. Samson is thirsty. I mean, he's, he's been betrayed by his brothers, yet won the battle for them by himself, by his own hand, against a determined enemy. And in the process, he becomes weak, he becomes thirsty, and as a result, he begins to contemplate the possibility of death from his exhaustion, from his thirst. So he appeals to the Lord, he asks for relief, and he asks for deliverance. In response, as you see, the Lord splits something called a hollow place. The word hollow can also be translated mortar. So it could have been something like a rock, we're not sure, but he he splits this place, he creates out of it a fountain of running water, or as the Jew would say, living water, as opposed to stagnant water. So living water flows out of this spring. The spring revives Samson's strength, brings it back, and then he names the spring in Hakor, which can be translated the voice of the one calling. The voice of the one calling. Now in all of these details, you find a picture from Samson's life, of Jesus again, specifically of his death on the cross. Jesus was betrayed by his brothers to hang on a cross. When he was hanging on the cross, he was in the moment winning a victory. He was winning a victory by his own hand, by himself. No one worked with Jesus in winning that victory, for it was a salvation that only Jesus could accomplish. Isaiah writes concerning the Messiah's victory over the enemy in this way. Isaiah 63, verse 5 This is spoken from the first-person perspective of Jesus. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. 
So you see the picture of Samson now bringing victory by his own hand, Jesus bringing victory by his own hand, in both cases as a result of the betrayal of his brothers. Secondly, as Jesus hung on the cross, he was in desperate thirst, which the Gospels record in John 19.28. In the moment of his crucifixion, we read, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, said, I am thirsty. Christ's thirst on the cross came, as you notice in John's Gospel, after all the work of redemption had been accomplished. The work had already been done at that point, just as Samson's thirst came after he had already won the battle against the Philistines. And then you have Samson's mention of death in connection to his thirst, and that's answered by a spring of flowing or living water. And here again, a picture in Christ's death. Just as the Father turned the death of Christ into a spring of living water, the well of living water is said to come forth from the one who is calling, echoing the way that from Christ's death comes now the Spirit calling to the world to follow Christ. Jesus described this himself. In John chapter 4, 4.13, Jesus answered to the woman at the well and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, referring to the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst, but the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So Jesus himself, describing the product of his salvation, ties us back to the story of Samson in this moment. The picture is completed that way. So we have a moment at the end of 15 in which, even though Samson is doing all these wrong things, God's having to drag him through a process against essentially his own will, and bring him to where he should be, nevertheless, God is able to use this to create a picture of Christ. And so we have in the story the defeat of the Philistines, Samson overcoming the efforts of his brothers to betray him, and with this victory, he establishes himself now as a man to rule Israel. And notice at the very end of 15, Samson gives us that single footnote to the story. So he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. What Samuel's saying is, from this point, Samson judges for 20 years. In fact, Samuel's referring to the final 20 years of Samson's life. He's been a judge for some time already. His anointing was the moment he became a judge. But why are we saying that he judges now for 20 years? Because he is finally fulfilling the calling to be the judge God called him to be. This indicates that he has finally arrived at the place where God intended him to be, in that sense. But secondly, notice his ruling is said to coincide with the days of the Philistines. Think about that for a minute. He is the judge ruling in the days of the Philistines. But what was the point of him being raised up and anointed in the first place? To put away the Philistines, remember? So Samson is supposed to remove this enemy, and yet he is judging in the midst of this enemy. Remember past judges? Past judges were raised up to do away with the enemy. And then there'd be that period of peace. Not so much now. Not for Samson. Samson is going to continue to contend with the Philistines all the way to the end of his life. In fact, in the last few years of his life as judge, another man will have been anointed and prepared to take on the role of judge. And for a time, they actually overlap. Do you know who the other man is? The author of this book, Samuel. So while Samson, as we're about to see, is busy running off cavorting with harlots and other women, Samuel is a boy serving faithfully in the tabernacle, demonstrating that as one man is going one direction, God is raising up another. This is another sign of the continual weakening of Jewish society. Even a mighty man like Samson can't finish the mission God gives him. Now, into 16, and this completes this chapter, gets us to the end of Samson's life. We won't finish it today, but 
you'll begin to see where it's going pretty quickly. We see that though God has used this man, though he has responded to some degree, there's something at the core of Samson's heart that's just not right. And as a result, he takes, his life takes a turn for the worse rather than for the better at this point. Verse 1. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. We'll stop there because I want to explain what he's doing. We witnessed in the last chapter what I would call some steps of faith, some obedience from Samson, at least at the end of chapter 15. But what you're about to discover is that his untamed, impulsive nature has not changed. It's still there. And sometime during those 20 years that end his career as judge, he decides that he's going to go down to Gaza and he's going to visit a prostitute, a harlot. Now Gaza is a city in the heart of the Philistine territory. Historically, this is a sunny area of the Mediterranean, a village of vacationers before the the more recent trials that go on there now. It was a place where both Jew and Palestinian would go and vacation. And it's long been a vacation spot for the Jews. So perhaps Samson didn't go there expressly to find a harlot. He was going there really just to have a vacation in the sun. But you know the saying, what happens in Gaza stays in Gaza. So while he's there... Well, his plan is a bad idea, and for more reasons than the obvious. He's traveling deep into the heart of the enemy's territory. He's been at war with them for 20 years. He's a wanted man. Surely he's going to be in danger. And yet here he is taking this unnecessary chance, just waltzing in to Gaza. In a sense, what he's doing is he's testing God's patience and God's willingness to protect his anointed. He's almost daring God not to be faithful which is the kind of test you do not want to proceed in when it comes to the Lord, because he will not subject himself to our testing. Furthermore, frolicking with the Philistines on their beaches is not part of the plan of destroying the Philistine people. It's not part of the bigger goal. In the same way that he compromised by marrying a Philistine, what part of destroy the Philistines does he not get? But this seems to be an indicative aspect of his nature. He's just always thinking of flesh and self and self-gratification, And his concern to do what God's called him to do is secondary at all times in his walk. Lastly, Samson is clearly weak in the flesh when it comes to women. This is now the second time we've seen him fall for a Philistine woman, or or lust after one in this case. And his willingness to cavort with Philistine prostitutes is just a reminder that though he has the strength of a thousand warriors, he can't defeat his own sinful desires. Every one of us, I think, can identify with that, can't we? At least a little bit, right? To one degree or another, when it comes to fighting our flesh and losing. But having said that, I do want to say, you don't have to lose that battle. That's the other side of the coin. There is that side that Paul gives us in Romans 7 that says, look, we live in a body that's fallen. We have sin in our lives. It's never going to completely go away until we have our new body. And therefore, we have to know the struggle in itself is not reason to doubt the security we have in our faith and in our salvation. The fact that I have sinned doesn't mean I'm less Christian. Not in our identity. That's what Paul wanted us to know in Romans 7, leading into Romans 8. Who will free me from this body of death? Well, he gives us the answer, right? Christ will, eventually. But for now, it's a reality. But having said that, flip the coin over for a minute, because if you stay on that one side and never go to the other, you get tempted to think, well, because I have sinned, I can't do anything about it. I just have to accept it. God accepts me the way I am. So let's enjoy a prostitute in Gaza once in a while, to use Samson's example. But that's forgetting the flip side. The flip side is, you don't have to lose the battle. Not always. 
You're never free of the struggle, but you don't have to throw your hands up and concede to defeat either. That's not Paul's point in Romans, certainly, and not the testimony of Scripture. Because, friends, you and I can take steps to stack the odds in our favor when it comes to dealing with the struggles we all know, whatever version of those struggles are in our own individual life. You can pray. You can fill your heart with the counsel of God's Word. You can seek godly encouragement. You can seek accountability. But most of all, and I think the thing we often fail to do the most, is we can set healthy boundaries and healthy limits knowing our weaknesses, knowing what we tend to do. Think about Samson for a moment. He knows, or he should have known, that he had an eye for the ladies. So with that proclivity, with that weakness, what do you do if your heart is inclined to not sin in that way? If you're truly desiring to do what God wants, you want to please Him by obedience, and you know that aspect of your nature is there, what do you do? Well, may I submit, you do not go down into the heart of a playground in the enemy's territory and find a prostitute. In other words, there were a series of decisions you just made that got you to that point, and at any moment along that path, you could have stopped yourself and said, you know, that's not going to work out well if I do that. You don't fall into a prostitute's tent in Gaza 40 miles from your hometown. It's not like it's a trip and, oh, my goodness, look how I got here. Right? It was a series of things. You know, I do enough individual counseling, and I have my own life to deal with for that matter, to know that it's almost never the fact that someone's in sin because it just hit them over the side of the head like a two-by-four, and here I am. I mean, there were a series of things that brought you to that point. And we all know this, right? No one in this room is immune from the very set of circumstances I'm describing, one way or another. And I like Samson's example here as a reminder to us. I think it's a powerful one. That you can be very strong in the flesh. You can be a mighty person. He was in physical terms. We might think ourselves that way in character terms, in moral terms, or in some other way. You know, we have a strength about us. You might very well have that. But you are fooling yourself dangerously if you think that's enough. Because you fight a flesh in yourself and you fight an enemy in the world who knows all the tricks and is always present, never gives up, never takes a day off. That means that when you are at your weakest, you're likely to lose that battle if you have not set up some parameters in your life where you're protected against yourself. He was daring his flesh to trip him up. I think in the actions you see here, he actually walked in, maybe not with this conscious thought, but certainly unconsciously, he walked into that situation saying, you know what, I can handle anything. I can go as wild as I want and I'll be just fine. Why? Because I have fleshly strength. I think that's why he thought he might walk into the enemy's territory and not fear the enemy. Because these people had no hope to stop him physically because he could break the bonds anyone put on him. He could defeat a thousand men with a bone. So who's going to defeat him, right? It's literally like he's Superman as he walks through this town. But when your pride puts you in a position to think that strongly of your own abilities, oh my goodness, you are just ripe for the fall. That is exactly where the enemy wants us. What are those strongholds in your life? What are those places in your life where your flesh has an advantage? If you don't know or if you can't name them off the top of your head, well, well I would encourage you to give some more thought to that because they're there. If you don't know them, you're, you're going to be a victim to them. And then once you do identify them, cross them off your map and say to yourself, I don't go there anymore, as the phrase goes. I don't go there. Make the decisions now to place barriers between yourself and your personal Gaza The Jewish mindset has a a concept called fences. And the idea is that if the law says don't do this, well then I'm going to put some other rules in place that are my own rules that stop me from even getting to that point where I could 
disobey the law. They go ridiculous lengths in that regard. I'm not saying everything they do in that world is right. You can't eat a cheeseburger because they said you can't boil a goat in her mother's milk. Well, never mind that we don't put goat meat in hamburgers and cheese isn't milk. But the point is they make that kind of an association so that they don't have any chance, they think, of violating that law. That's absurd. That's sort of the extreme. But we can be much more reasonable and still make good use of that same concept. You have trouble with with what you can see on the internet? Well, then don't have a computer in a private place in your house. Don't get a smartphone. Do what's needed. You know, Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And his point, of course, was not to maim your body. It's it's a metaphor. It's a it's a hyperbola. It's saying something in an exaggerated way to make a point. And what his point is is there's nothing worth sinning. There's nothing that you have, nothing you like, nothing you do, nothing in your life that you shouldn't be willing to give up if it is the answer to stopping sin. Because at the ultimate end of all things, when you stand before the Lord, it will be your lack of obedience that can impact what he can do for us in the kingdom. So what we're saying is nothing in your life is so important that it's not worth giving up if it leads you into obedience. This man wasn't willing to give up his desire for women or his pride. His principal conceit is that he is so physically strong that he assumes his spiritual strength is equal to it. And that was a mistake. He's no match for his own flesh. Consider how much more Samson could have achieved in his life if he hadn't had the weight of all that sinful flesh pulling him backward. What could have a man like Samson done with what he had? It's unimaginable what he could have done. So anyway, Samson seeks to please his flesh, and that leads to an opportunity for the enemy. Look at verse 2. When it was told to the Gazites, saying, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept silent all night, saying, Let us wait until the morning light, and then we will kill him. Now Samson lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts and pulled them up along with the bars. And then he put them on his shoulders and carried them up to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Hebron. So to no one's surprise, the Philistines know he's there. And they decide, here's our chance to kill our enemy. He's amongst us. So they lay in wait for him, it says here, in the gate of the city. Now the gate of the city, as you probably already know, is the main entrance into a walled city. It's where you had to go to get in and out of the city. And the gate was a lot more than just, you know, like a garden gate. Or even a big door you might see on a castle. It was more elaborate than that. The gate was actually a multi-chambered room built into the the wall of the city. And it had a second story in most cases that connected to the walkway up onto the top of the city wall. So it's two-level, it's big, it's got rooms in it. And of course, at the front of it, there's a gate. And usually at the back of it also, there was a gate. So it's a double-gated, chambered area. And what the Philistines have decided is, look, he's got to go through this place if he's going to leave the city. So we're going to see him come through here at some point. He'll probably do it sometime in the morning. He's not going to travel at night, they assume. And so they said, look, let's just get into the gate now. We'll hide in the gate. Maybe they were either going to leap down on him from the top level to the bottom level or just hide in the corner and then surprise him, whatever. They just thought they could catch him off guard. Somehow, and we don't know how, Samson is alerted to the plan. Perhaps the Spirit gave him that insight, we don't know. Anyway, at midnight, he decides he will go and leave the city on his own terms, rather than wait for the morning. So he's going to leave before the men expect him, so he can perhaps avoid their trap. But there's only one problem with Samson's plan. And the problem with Samson's plan is, the gates aren't open at midnight. This is not a 24-hour city. In that day and age, city gates were closed at a certain time in the evening, and they didn't open again until the morning for the protection of the people who lived in the city. So you don't just walk out of a city at midnight. Not on this day. 
But this is not a problem for Samson because, as you can see, he just grabs the gates, rips them away, complete with their doorposts and the horizontal bar that's used to, to bar the door closed. He just picks up the whole thing in the city gate and walks away. Now, this is an unimaginably difficult thing for us to consider doing, right? We can't even imagine how someone can do this. These doors would have been quite large, and they would have been extremely heavy because these are Philistine doors. And remember, the Philistines had the technology of iron when no one else did, and they would typically clad their wooden doors with iron. So we're talking about doors that are probably thousands of pounds. Never mind the force required to just pull them out of the ground. I mean, the whole thing is, is unbelievable. And if that weren't enough, he then puts them on his shoulders, which I'm not even sure what that looks like. You can't even see the guy. You just see this big wobbly thing on top of him. And he just walks away. And it's unclear exactly how far he goes. Hebron is a mountain 40 miles northeast from Gaza. And it's an uphill walk the whole way from where he is. He's on the coast. Hebron's one of the tallest mountains in Israel. So he's going to go all the way up, right? But it's unlikely that he goes all the way to Hebron because if you get all the way to Hebron, you can't see Gaza and Gaza can't see you from that distance. The purpose in him taking them away from the city was to mock the city that they would have the ability to kill him like they thought and probably put them in the ground in a hill visible from the city of Gaza. And so the text is indicating that it was in the direction of Hebron in the hill opposite of Hebron, but not all the way to Hebron, still, I mean, it doesn't matter if he carries them ten feet, right? This is something miraculous and supernatural. God letting Samson's anointing get him out of the trouble that he created by his flesh. It's a dramatic display, but it's also an ironic display. Because while his physical victory is clear, it's overshadowed by his spiritual defeat. And it's an abuse of his position as judge. He's tempting the Lord to allow him to be defeated by somebody sooner or later just for the purpose of subduing his pride. And this is a very dramatic example of of that kind of pattern, but we've seen this pattern. You don't have to go back to the time of Judges to see God working this way. There are many people, none of whom we would need to mention, who have come and gone in the course of the church over centuries, who have taken on positions of prominence, who were gifted in some very remarkable ways, either in their teaching or in some other aspect of ministry, and then they let it get to their head. They decided it was they who were the important person. It was something about them that made them successful, and they decided they were going to play that out to their own demise. And then at some point, God lets them fall. God's not going to be mocked forever. That's how Samson's story is turning, right? The whole story that you just read here at the beginning of 16 is there for one reason. It's prelude to what comes next. It explains what comes next. Samson's spiritual weakness, especially with women, becomes opportunity for the enemy to eventually seek his downfall. So Samuel told us, the writer of this book told us, about the harlot, because he wants us to understand that Samson eventually is going to be brought down because while the Lord is forgiving and he is patient, friends, he is not permissive. Permissiveness means turning a blind eye to sin. He eventually brings discipline on his children. And so if if Samson's going to insist on staying close to Israel's enemy and to their women particularly, then the Lord is just going to use that sin to bring a measure of discipline. Verse 4. After this it came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him, see where his great strength lies, and how we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him. Then we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. The valley of Sorek lies in, you guessed it, Philistine territory. 
Apparently there was not a single Jewish woman that appealed to this guy. The Sork Valley is an east-west valley just north of Beth Shemesh. It's right on the borderline between the hill country of Judah where the Jews traditionally had control and on the western side it goes down into the coastal plain where the Philistines had control. So this is like the DMZ. This is right on the border. And apparently he's moving through this valley perhaps to visit more Philistine cities. I don't know why, but he meets this woman called Delilah. Now the name Delilah is actually Jewish in origins, which could indicate then that this is not a Philistine woman, but a Jewish woman. On the other hand, this town, as I said, existed on the border where these two cultures mixed very freely. So you can't be sure about her origins just on the basis of her name. It's very easily the case that a Philistine family may have assigned one of their children this kind of a name, even though it wasn't Philistine in origin. And then when you consider what she's willing to do for the Philistines, it would seem more likely that she's on their side, right? That she's a Philistine woman. In that sense, she kind of serves as a poster child for the whole time of Judges, or at least this period of Judges. She personifies the way the Jews and the Philistines had mixed culturally and combined because of the weakness of the Jewish people. There's almost no distinction between them anymore now. You're not even sure who's who. The Philistine leaders see with Samson's interest in Delilah, they see this perfect opportunity to discover Samson's secret. The very fact that they need to understand where his strength comes from, I think that confirms something I said to you all here a couple weeks back about the nature of Samson's appearance. I said that we can't imagine Samson as some muscular bodybuilder type, the way he's often portrayed in the pictures people draw of him, the pictures of him pushing mountains down and carrying these things, and he looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger times ten. That's always the way we portray him, but friends, I think he looked more like Clark Kent than Superman, and one of the reasons I would give you for that is that they need to understand where his power comes from. They don't get it. It doesn't make sense to them. They need to know how to defeat him. What's his kryptonite? We can't figure it out. Because we know it's something different. It's not physical, because who'd explain it that way? Anyway, they tell Delilah, if you help us get that information, we'll pay you. And the fee that they offer her, 1,100 pieces or coins of silver, in that day, a person could live a very comfortable lifestyle on 10 pieces of silver a year. So she's being offered a fortune of a lifetime to get this secret. That tells you how important this was to the Philistines. It tells you how much they want to defeat this guy that no one has been able to take down. And so they pay her to get a secret out of him. And have we not seen this story before? Right? A woman asked by others to figure out a secret. Remember earlier Samson loses a bet over his riddle because he couldn't say no to a crying woman? This time he's going to be asked for something much greater and he's going to be willing to do it for a lot less than he was in the first case. Look at verse 6. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength is and how you may be bound to afflict you. Well, she gets a point for honesty. Verse 7, Samson said to her, hey, If they bind me with seven fresh cords that have not been dried, then I will become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh cords that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now, she had men lying in wait in an inner room, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the cords as a string of toe snaps when it touches fire. So his strength was not discovered. Her first attempt is just to ask him, flat out, hey, could you tell me how we can beat you, please? Verse 16 just throws me for a loop. I really don't quite understand how that was going to work. Obviously, Samson knew better than to hand over his secret to some Philistine woman. I mean, she even says, it's so we can afflict you, by the way. 
And so instead of divulging the real secret, he gives her a false answer. I'm not exactly sure what she was expecting. This seems to me to be a bit of an odd one. But, but maybe she had him in some quiet romantic moment. Maybe she was just hoping he would have his guard down. I don't know. But she asks. Hold that thought for next week, by the way. Meanwhile, he gives her this false answer. He says, oh yeah, tell them they can tie me up with these seven fresh cords and I'm yours. Obviously, he knew that something was going to happen with this. I mean, there was something up with her. And so he's just toying with her. And after she gives this, quote, secret to the Philistines, well, then they give her the cords, and then she binds Samson. That's another moment I don't quite get. I can get why he might play along a little bit, but the whole thing just, it looks like Samson just playing with the whole danger of the moment and trying to have fun with it. We don't know what happens to the unfortunate Philistines who happen to be the guys lying in wait for this moment, but obviously they either just ran off or he knocked them you know, to the ground and they ran off. We, we don't know. I almost imagine this like one of those dime store detective novels, you know, aha, I have you now, you know, and the curly mustache and, and the whole routine, right? And, and uh, now you are mine. Samson is, I foiled you, and then nothing going to happen, right? But this seems to be Samson's principal defense. No one dares challenge his physical power, so that unless they can defeat his physical power, they have no hope, they don't even bother. Of course, Delilah, she doesn't appreciate being deceived. There's a lot of money on the line, and Samson just made a fool of her. So she complains of his bad treatment, which I again find this just incredibly ironic. Verse 10, Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have deceived me and told me lies. Now please, tell me how you may be bound. (laughs) This is so funny to me, right? How dare you treat me badly? Now, tell me how I can beat you. Verse 11, he said to her, If they bind me tightly with new ropes which have not been used, well, then I will become weak. And be like any other man. A variation on the other lie. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. For the men were lying in wait in the inner room. But he snapped the ropes from his arm like a thread. We don't have to say much, right? It's the same routine. She makes Samson out to be the bad guy. Obviously overlooking her own conspiracy against him. But what's even more remarkable is Samson's willingness here to continue. She's obviously intent on bringing him down. She's obviously in cahoots with the Philistines. He saw the first time play out, and yet he's still there. Even if he thinks he can beat her. Why? Why play with this? Why not recognize the threat? Why continue to toy with her? If that doesn't tell you enough about the pride of this guy and the lack of discretion that his pride has brought him to. This is playing with the enemy. This is like the Christian who says, you know what, I'm going to witness to evil people in the topless bar, and even though there's these naked women all around, I'm strong enough, I won't lust, I'll be able to go in there and do what God calls. I mean, that's just crazy. Even if you thought you could do that, why would you do that? In other words, why would you take the risk? Why would you take all of the danger that comes with it? Why not just stand on the outside of the door, and when they come out, talk to them? You know, There's other ways to accomplish that purpose if that's truly what God's called you to do. But the point is, this man puts no boundaries on his life, no discretion, even after he's gone to the prostitute, and then he goes to Delilah, and then he has the whole thing with the, the people trying to pounce on him. You think at that point, maybe you say, you know, this isn't the safe place for me. No, he does it again. Scripture says, flee from temptation. But Samson's not fleeing. He's really daring the enemy to find a way. He thinks he's invincible. What explains a behavior like this? It's simple, friends. It's two things working in union, pride and lust. And when these two things get in combination with one another, they cloud your judgment. He's confident in his strength, but he gives no regard to the strength of the enemy. And more importantly, he gives no regard to the will of the Lord. Because his strength is an anointing from the Lord. And just like it could come, God can release it, right? God can say, I can remove my spirit, I can take this back. 
Now, the calling and the gifts of God are irrevocable. That doesn't mean the power to use them is going to be ever-present. He's still going to be a judge, but that doesn't mean God has to make sure he wins every battle. He forgets that his power had a source outside himself, and the same Lord who gave Samson these powers can remove that blessing when it suits him. And he's daring God to do it at this point in his life. The Lord didn't raise Samson up to serve himself. And therefore, that strength, all that supernatural stuff he does, it's not a parlor trick. It's not so that he can be famous. This had a purpose in his life. And if he's not willing to accomplish the purpose God had for him, then God doesn't need him to have the power. It's just that simple. That's the life every believer has. Although, of course, we don't all share the same powers. That's not the point. But we have not been saved for our own sake but rather to seek for the glory of the God who saved us. And when your flesh gets you so far off track that you're no longer serving the Lord, but you're only serving yourself, don't think that his promise to bring all things to good means your life will be nothing but good. It means he can take a disastrous life and turn it to good in eternal terms, even as he brings some measure of discipline upon the person who deserves it. He's not vengeful to those he loves. He is purposeful. Just don't dare him. Don't test him to show that he's willing to discipline. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, that uh, Samson's life stands before us as a reminder. I thank you, Father, for, uh, for the reminders of both sides of that coin that we talked about today. That though, Father, we have a struggle of sin and we acknowledge it, and you do too in your word. And we, we don't claim perfection, and, and Father, we don't make that the standard that defines your approval either. For it's not possible. And Father, in fact, you will in your power give us the sanctification that will make us perfect one day. But on the other side of that coin, Father, is the requirement that we, we not be satisfied with sin. And that we not uh, seek to put ourselves in place of temptation and trial. But rather, Father, we flee it. We seek for things that are good and holy and righteous. And we appeal to you in our lives for the strength to do the right thing. And we do not become satisfied in sin. Father, those are the traits of one who is seeking to be more like Christ. And we ask, Lord, you give us a heart for that, a mind for that, a dissatisfaction with the sin that is in our lives. And yet at the same time, Father, don't allow the enemy to take what we know is true in these things and turn them into a condemnation that causes us to lose heart, to lose uh, the encouragement that's necessary to keep moving forward. Father, I pray that you'd... uh, Continue to remind us, Father, that we've been accepted because of Christ, not because of our own works, that we are loved because of who Christ is in us and not for anything we've done or will do, and that we cannot lose that. But at the same time, Father, we know that you have uh, called us to be holy as our Father is holy. We want to give that same effort, Father, to, to living according to the will of God as we have given to celebrating the grace we've received. Thank you, Father. And let this message be something we can use to perhaps counsel and encourage others who need to hear it as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.